Freedom and Virtue Institute presents Readings in the Freedom and Virtue Tradition, hosted by Director of Research Kevin Schmiesing. Truly one of the giants in the Western intellectual tradition, St. Thomas Aquinas, 1225-1274, was born in Italy and became a Dominican friar. He studied and taught in the great centers of learning of medieval Europe, Naples, Rome, Cologne, and Paris. He had an enormous impact on the theology of Christianity, Roman Catholicism in particular, as well as Western philosophy in a variety of fields, ethics, metaphysics, politics, and law. Thomistic philosophy dominated much of Western thought through the late Middle Ages and has remained an important tradition ever since. There are still Thomistic philosophers, societies, and journals today, 800 years after Thomas's birth. His magnum opus was Summa Theologica, a project unfinished at his death that nonetheless encompasses more than 3,000 articles consisting of some 10,000 objections and answers. Aquinas's work is a prime example of scholastic method, whereby the philosopher raises objections to his own views and then answers those objections. I'll be reading from the first part of the second part of the Summa, Question 91, Article 2, and Question 94, Articles 2, 4, 5, and 6. This is a section known as the Treatise on Law, and the focus in my excerpts is on the concept of natural law. This concept has played an important role, especially in Christian ethics and the Western moral tradition more generally. It posits that all human beings have some level of access to the principles of right action as ordered by God in creation. My reading is taken from the Benziger Brothers edition of the Summa, translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province, as presented at Project Gutenberg. I have edited the text for the purpose of readability for this podcast, adding a few brief identifiers, eliminating various references, and omitting answers to objections, which are useful in the written text, but difficult to follow in this format. Treatise on Law by Thomas Aquinas Whether there is in us a natural law Objection 1. It would seem that there is no natural law in us, because man is governed sufficiently by the eternal law. For Augustine says that the eternal law is that by which it is right that all things should be most orderly. But nature does not abound in superfluities, as neither does she fail in necessaries. Therefore, no law is natural to man. Objection 2. Further, by the law man is directed in his acts to the end. But the directing of human acts to their end is not a function of nature, as is the case in irrational creatures, which act for an end solely by their natural appetite, whereas man acts for an end by his reason and will. Therefore, no law is natural to man. Objection 3. Further, the more a man is free, the less is he under the law. But man is freer than all the animals, on account of his free will, with which he is endowed above all other animals. Since, therefore, other animals are not subject to a natural law, neither is man subject to a natural law. Aquinas answers, On the contrary, 
a gloss on Romans 2.14, When the Gentiles who have not the law do by nature those things that are of the law, comments as follows, Although they have no written law, yet they have the natural law, whereby each one knows and is conscious of what is good and what is evil. Law, being a rule and measure, can be in a person in two ways. In one way, as in him that rules and measures. In another way, as in that which is ruled and measured, since a thing is ruled and measured, insofar as it partakes of the rule or measure. Wherefore, since all things subject to divine providence are ruled and measured by the eternal law, it is evident that all things partake somewhat of the eternal law, insofar as, from its being imprinted on them, they derive their respective inclinations to their proper acts and ends. Now among all others, the rational creature is subject to divine providence in the most excellent way, insofar as it partakes of a share of providence, by being provident both for itself and for others. Wherefore it has a share of the eternal reason, whereby it has a natural inclination to its proper act and end, and this participation of the eternal law in the rational creature is called the natural law. Hence the psalmist, after saying, Offer up the sacrifice of justice, as though someone asked what the works of justice are, adds, Many say, Who showeth us good things? In answer to which question he says, The light of thy countenance, O Lord, is signed upon us thus implying that the light of natural reason, whereby we discern what is good and what is evil, which is the function of the natural law, is nothing else than an imprint on us of the divine light. It is therefore evident that the natural law is nothing else than the rational creature's participation in the eternal law. Whether the natural law contains several precepts or only one, I have omitted the objections here and proceed straight to Aquinas' answer. The precepts of the natural law in man stand in relation to practical matters as the first principles to matters of demonstration, but there are several first indemonstrable principles. Therefore, there are also several precepts of the natural law. The precepts of the natural law are to the practical reason what the first principles of demonstrations are to the speculative reason because both are self-evident principles. Now a thing is said to be self-evident in two ways, first in itself, secondly in relation to us. Any proposition is said to be self-evident in itself if its predicate is contained in the notion of the subject, although to one who knows not the definition of the subject it happens that such a proposition is not self-evident. For instance, this proposition, man is a rational being, is in its very nature self-evident, since who says man says a rational being. And yet to one who knows not what a man is, this proposition is not self-evident. Hence it is that as Boethius says, certain axioms or propositions are universally self-evident to all, and such are those propositions whose terms are known to all, as every whole is greater than its part, and things equal to one and the same are equal to one another. But some propositions are self-evident only to the wise, who understand the meaning of the terms of such propositions. Thus to one who understands that an angel is not a body, it is self-evident that an angel is not circumscriptively in a place, but this is not evident to the unlearned, for they cannot grasp it. 
Now a certain order is to be found in those things that are apprehended universally. For that which before aught else falls under apprehension is being, the notion of which is included in all things whatsoever a man apprehends. Wherefore the first indemonstrable principle is that the same thing cannot be affirmed and denied at the same time, which is based on the notion of being and not being, and on this principle all others are based, as is stated in Aristotle's Metaphysics. Now, as being is the first thing that falls under the apprehension simply, so good is the first thing that falls under the apprehension of the practical reason, which is directed to action, since every agent acts for an end under the aspect of good. Consequently, the first principle of practical reason is one founded on the notion of good, namely, that good is that which all things seek after. Hence, this is the first precept of law, that good is to be done and pursued, and evil is to be avoided. All other precepts of the natural law are based upon this, so that whatever the practical reason naturally apprehends as man's good, or evil, belongs to the precepts of the natural law as something to be done or avoided. Since, however, good has the nature of an end, and evil the nature of a contrary, hence it is that all those things to which man has a natural inclination are naturally apprehended by reason as being good, and consequently as objects of pursuit, and their contraries as evil and objects of avoidance. Wherefore, according to the order of natural inclinations, is the order of the precepts of the natural law. Because in man there is first of all an inclination to good in accordance with the nature which he has in common with all substances, inasmuch as every substance seeks the preservation of its own being according to its nature. And by reason of this inclination, whatever is a means of preserving human life and of warding off its obstacles belongs to the natural law. Secondly, there is in man an inclination to things that pertain to him more specially, according to that nature which he has in common with other animals. And in virtue of this inclination, those things are said to belong to the natural law, which nature has taught to all animals, such as sexual intercourse, education of offspring, and so forth. Thirdly, there is in man an inclination to good, according to the nature of his reason, which nature is proper to him. Thus man has a natural inclination to know the truth about God, and to live in society. And in this respect, whatever pertains to this inclination belongs to the natural law. For instance, to shun ignorance, to avoid offending those among whom one has to live, and other such things regarding the above inclination. Whether the natural law is the same in all men. Objection 1. It would seem that the natural law is not the same in all, for it is stated in the Decretals that the natural law is that which is contained in the law and the gospel. But this is not common to all men, because as it is written in Romans chapter 10, all do not obey the gospel. Therefore, the natural law is not the same in all men. Objection 2. Further, things which are according to the law are said to be just, as stated in Aristotle's Ethics. But it is stated in the same book that nothing is so universally just as not to be subject to change in regard to some men. Therefore, even the natural law is not the same in all men. Objection 3. Further, to the natural law belongs everything to which a man is inclined according to his nature. Now, different men are naturally inclined to different things, some to the desire of pleasures, other to the desire of honors, and other men to other things. Therefore, there is not one natural law for all.
On the contrary, Isidore says, the natural law is common to all nations. To the natural law belong those things to which a man is inclined naturally, and among these it is proper to man to be inclined to act according to reason. Now the process of reason is from the common to the proper, as stated in Aristotle's Physics. The speculative reason, however, is differently situated in this matter from the practical reason. For since the speculative reason is busied chiefly with necessary things, which cannot be otherwise than they are, its proper conclusions, like the universal principles, contain the truth without fail. The practical reason, on the other hand, is busied with contingent matters about which human actions are concerned, and consequently, although there is necessity in the general principles, the more we descend to matters of detail, the more frequently we encounter defects. Accordingly, then, in speculative matters, truth is the same in all men, both as to principles and as to conclusions, although the truth is not known to all as regards the conclusions, but only as regards the principles which are called common notions. But in matters of action, truth or practical rectitude is not the same for all as to matters of detail, but only as to the general principles, and where there is the same rectitude in matters of detail, it is not equally known to all. It is therefore evident that as regards the general principles, whether of speculative or of practical reason, truth or rectitude is the same for all and is equally known by all. As to the proper conclusions of the speculative reason, the truth is the same for all, but is not equally known to all. Thus it is true for all that the three angles of a triangle are together equal to two right angles, although it is not known to all. But as to the proper conclusions of the practical reason, neither is the truth or rectitude the same for all, nor, where it is the same, is it equally known by all. Thus it is right and true for all to act according to reason, and from this principle it follows as a proper conclusion that goods entrusted to another should be restored to their owner. Now this is true for the majority of cases, but it may happen in a particular case that it would be injurious and therefore unreasonable to restore goods held in trust, for instance if they are claimed for the purpose of fighting against one's country. And this principle will be found to fail the more according as we descend further into detail. For instance, if one were to say that goods held in trust should be restored with such and such a guarantee, or in such and such a way, because the greater the number of conditions added, the greater the number of ways in which the principle may fail, so that it be not right to restore, or not to restore. Consequently, we must say that the natural law as to general principles is the same for all, both as to rectitude and as to knowledge. But as to certain matters of detail, which are conclusions, as it were, of those general principles, it is the same for all in the majority of cases, both as to rectitude and as to knowledge, and yet in some few cases it may fail, both as to rectitude, by reason of certain obstacles, just as nature's subject to generation and corruption fail in some few cases on account of some obstacle, and as to knowledge, since in some the reason is perverted by passion, or evil habit, or an evil disposition of nature. Thus, formerly, theft, although it is expressly contrary to the natural law, was not considered wrong among the Germans, as Julius Caesar relates. Whether the natural law can be changed. Objection 1. It would seem that the natural law can be changed, because on Ecclesiasticus chapter 17, 9, he gave them instructions and the law of life, the gloss says, 
he wished the law of the letter to be written in order to correct the law of nature. But that which is corrected is changed. Therefore, the natural law can be changed. Objection 2. Further, the slaying of the innocent, adultery, and theft are against the natural law. But we find these things changed by God, as when God commanded Abraham to slay his innocent son, and when he ordered the Jews to borrow and purloin the vessels of the Egyptians, and when he commanded Hosea to take to himself a wife of fornications. Therefore, the natural law can be changed. Objection 3. Further, Isidore says that the possession of all things in common and universal freedom are matters of natural law. But these things are seen to be changed by human laws. Therefore, it seems that the natural law is subject to change. On the contrary, it is said in the Decretals, the natural law dates from the creation of the rational creature. It does not vary according to time, but remains unchangeable. A change in the natural law may be understood in two ways, first by way of addition. In this sense, nothing hinders the natural law from being changed, since many things for the benefit of human life have been added over and above the natural law, both by the divine law and by human laws. Secondly, a change in the natural law may be understood by way of subtraction, so that what previously was according to the natural law ceases to be so. In this sense, the natural law is altogether unchangeable in its first principles, but in its secondary principles, which are certain detailed proximate conclusions drawn from the first principles, the natural law is not changed so that what it prescribes be not right in most cases, but it may be changed in some particular cases of rare occurrence through some special causes hindering the observance of such precepts. Whether the law of nature can be abolished from the heart of man. Objection 1. It would seem that the natural law can be abolished from the heart of man. Because on Romans chapter 2.14, when the Gentiles who have not the law, a gloss says that the law of righteousness which sin had blotted out is graven on the heart of man when he is restored by grace. But the law of righteousness is the law of nature. Therefore, the law of nature can be blotted out. Objection 2. Further, the law of grace is more efficacious than the law of nature. But the law of grace is blotted out by sin. Much more, therefore, can the law of nature be blotted out. Objection 3. Further, that which is established by law is made just. But many things are enacted by men which are contrary to the law of nature. Therefore, the law of nature can be abolished from the heart of man. On the contrary, Augustine says, Thy law is written in the hearts of men, which iniquity itself effaces not. But the law which is written in men's hearts is the natural law. Therefore, the natural law cannot be blotted out. There belong to the natural law, first, certain most general precepts that are known to all, and secondly, certain secondary and more detailed precepts, which are, as it were, conclusions following closely from first principles. As to those general principles, the natural law in the abstract can nowise be blotted out from men's hearts. But it is blotted out in the case of a particular action, insofar as reason is hindered from applying the general principle to a particular point of practice on account of concupiscence or some other passion. But as to the other, that is, the secondary precepts, the natural law can be blotted out from the human heart, either by evil persuasions, just as in speculative matters errors occur in respect of necessary conclusions, or by vicious customs and corrupt habits, as among some men, 
theft, and even unnatural vices, as the Apostle states, were not esteemed sinful. Thank you for listening to this production of the Freedom and Virtue Institute. To offer feedback or suggestions for future episodes, please contact Kevin Schmeising by email kevin at fvinstitute.org.